useful uh, for you. So this morning we do have a Bible study, Matthew chapter 27. If you're visiting with us, we go through the books of the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse. We're getting ready to finish Matthew. We've got a couple more weeks, but we're looking at an incredible portion of Scripture that I know is going to be a tremendous blessing to you today as we look at the crucifixion of Jesus. So we'll start reading at verse 34 of Matthew chapter 27. And we want to pray. Pray for those who, again, a number of people who, as we hear it in the news, that have had COVID. Some of you have had it. You're back. We're glad that you're here. Uh, watching on live stream. We're going to be praying for you as well. Pray my throat holds out. I'm not sick. Don't worry. Okay. But you know how it gets dry and with all the teaching and radio, um, if I have to stop and cough a little bit, just bear with me. All right. So especially when it comes to the third service, when I do radio, Calvary Live, I got a mute button. So if I have to cough, I just hit that mute button or you know, if I have to blow my nose, I hit the mute button. Or if I want to say something snarky, I hit the mute button. So <laughs> I don't have a mute button here. So, <laughs> Father, we do ask that you just bless this time study of your word. It's good for the brethren to dwell together in unity. And we come into this place with different backgrounds and different experiences, different hurts different needs but we come together as one and we see it here we come together because of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection we live in a world where there is so much uncertainty and darkness and confusion and upheaval we see that the wars on the brink in Eastern Europe also in the Middle East We see the perplexity of nations with distress. Even as the Bible said, Jesus spoke of it would be in the last days. We know that it's perilous times. That there is so much that is going on, we wonder, and people wonder around us, what is the answer? We know that the answer is right here, what we're going to read today. It's the cross. That you loved us so much that you sent your son to die for us. And your son rose again to give us a living hope. Father, I pray that these verses that we're familiar with would strike us to a deeper degree than ever before. And so may we be attentive to remember our ringers need to be off our phones because, Lord, we want to to give all of our heart, open our ears, to, to see you clearly, your love for us, And may we leave this place more in love with you than when we came in, looking at so great a salvation that we have. So we commit this time to you, for you to touch us deeply once again. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So as we have seen, Jesus going through a series of trials. He went through three trials before the religious leaders. They would condemn him to death. They would beat him. And then the next morning, they would hand him over to Pontius Pilate. He actually went three trials before the civil leaders of 
uh, Rome there, and then he was condemned to die. As he was taken, he was scourged. He was uh, beaten by the Romans. They pulled out his beard. He had a crown of thorns that was pounded on his head. And we read, as going through Matthew's narrative here in chapter 27, that they led him away to be crucified. As we ended at verse 33, they come to a place called Golgotha, that is, say, the place of the skull, that is Calvary. And we know that as Jesus is going through the narrow streets of Jerusalem in this procession on his way to go out of the city gate of Jerusalem that was called Damascus, it's interesting that the last chapter of Hebrews tells us that Jesus and he would be crucified outside the city gate. And he was because there was that place of execution. There was a couple city blocks outside of the Damascus gate. And they took him there. And as he's going out, of course, with Jesus being beaten by the religious leaders, being beaten by the Romans, being scourged and lost so much blood that as he's carrying the cross there, that he would collapse under the weight of the cross. And we know that it was Simon of Cyrene, as we read last week, that was coming out of the country. He's coming into the city. And it was the Roman soldiers that compelled him to carry the cross of Jesus. We know also that there are two others that are from Luke's gospel that are led with him. They're going to be crucified alongside of Jesus, and we're going to see that. So let's begin once again as Jesus going to the cross. As we read in verse 34, And they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink uh, it. And so it is believed that they would give crucified victims sour wine and gall to help deaden the pain when someone was crucified. When Jesus tasted it, he wouldn't drink it. Now, crucifixion was a terrible, terrible way to die. It's where we get our word excruciating. It was very, very painful. We know that it is David that wrote in Psalm 22 that all of my bones are out of joint as we read about him describing the crucifixion in Psalm 22, a thousand years before this event happens, that all my bones out of joint, my heart is like wax, he writes. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a postured, and my tongue clings to my jaw. You have brought me to the dusk of death, and they have pierced my hands and my feet, and I can count all my bones. As the crucified victim would be on the cross, that as he hung there, it would be very painful. And it was by means of suffocation. In other words, as he was hanging there, the air would be squeezed out of his lungs. And over time, a long process, I believe that Roman records show that the longest that somebody was on the cross was like three or four days. And usually it took up to a day for somebody to, to begin to suffocate. The only way that you can get a breath of air was that you pushed up on the nails that was in your feet. And, of course, it was very painful to shoot pain up through your body. You get a, a gasp of air, and then you would collapse back down. So Jesus here on the cross as he's suffering, excruciating pain, uh, all his bones are out of joint. You know, as David writes that, I think, we, all of us, I think we've had one bone out of joint. Can you imagine all your bones out of joint? And as he's hanging on the cross, verse 35, we continue reading about it. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. 
So the Roman soldiers who were overseeing the crucifixion of Jesus, they began to cast lots to see who gets Jesus' garments. Again, that's prophesied in, in Psalm 22, verse 18. They would divide up his garments, his sandals, his inner cloak, his belt, and, and so forth. And when it came to his outer tunic, though, they would cast lots to see who would get his outer tunic or his robe, kind of like his coat. John chapter 19 tells us about that. And the reason that they did that is because that outer tunic, the, the robe, the cloak, would be very, very valuable. And it could be sold for money. So here are these guys casting lot to see who's going to get that most valuable piece of clothing from Jesus because they were more interested in getting a buck from him than receiving the blood of Jesus. They were more interested in getting money from Jesus rather than receiving the mercy of Jesus as he hung on that cross. And in John chapter 19, verse 23, informs us that Jesus' outer tunic was without seam. In Exodus chapter 28, in verse 39, Moses was told that the tunic, the, the, the uh, robe, the outer tunic of the high priest was to be skillfully weaved of fine linen, and it was to be seamless. Jesus, our great high priest, his tunic, his outer robe, would be made in such a way. So here the soldiers are rolling dice. They're gambling, playing games, seeing who's going to get his tunic, even as Jesus is dying for their sins. And my prayer and hope for all of us is that we would never come to the point where we're playing games with our Christianity that we're taking for granted so great a salvation that we do have. Playing games, how can I get more? And, and how close can I be to the world and still be a Christian? I get that question all the time. Pastor Jeff, is it okay if I go out partying? Is it okay if I smoke dope and all of this? The question should be, how close can I get to you, Lord? And as we discussed last week, dying to self, picking up our cross, and following after him. Are we ones that we take for granted this great salvation, this salvation that cost Jesus in such tremendous way the great sufferings? Are we ones that we go through life murmuring and complaining rather than having a heart of gratitude and thankfulness for what Jesus has done for us as he went to the cross for you and for me? And we continue reading it as we see Jesus on the cross. What's going on? The scene around the cross. In verse 37, they put over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blaspheming him, wagging their heads. And saying, you who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. And likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said that he saved others, verse 42, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now. If he will have him, for he said, I am the son of God. And verse 44, even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. 
So the place where Jesus was executed, we know one of the Gospels tell us that there was a road nearby. Now keep in mind that this is Passover. There's a lot of people coming in and out of the city there. So a lot of people are passing by. And as some would pass by, Mark's Gospel informs us that they were mocking him, the passerbyers. We read here in Matthew's narrative that the religious leaders are there at the cross and they are mocking him. Verse 41, the wording there, mocking, it means acting like children who love to mock one another. And we've seen this happen with kids when they are teenagers. They begin to mock one another, and it just gets intense, and and they go at it with each other. Well, that's what they are doing. They're mocking Jesus in that way. And also, as we read here, that they're wagging their heads. In other words, they're very emotional. All of the animosity, all of the hatred towards Jesus that they had. Remember, they beat him the night before. It's carrying on. Here's Jesus on the cross after he's been scourged and beaten. And as Isaiah said, that he was marred more than any other man. And that anger and animosity continues. And they're, they're wagging their heads. They're yelling. They're shaking their fist at Jesus. We can talk about the cross to people around us. And sometimes people get very upset, don't they? They begin to mock. They, they get very emotional. What do you mean I need to be forgiven? What do you mean Jesus died for my sin? I don't need Jesus. I don't need this, this religious stuff. And, and I'll be okay. And they get very angry. And they begin to mock. They mock the cross. They can mock you and I who believe in the saving grace of Jesus Christ and our need to be forgiven. And the chief priests here are mocking, saying, he saved others himself he cannot save. He said that destroy the temple, and as we read in verse 40, and build it again in three days. Then go ahead, save yourself. And, of course, they're making reference to John chapter 2 in the first cleansing of the temple. As Jesus said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll build it up i'll raise it up again and they're saying what do you mean it's taken us all these years to build this temple they're thinking of the physical temple the magnificent temple standing in jerusalem he's talking about his resurrection and so not only they they mocking his crucifixion they're mocking his resurrection as well hey you're the son of god if you're the son of god if god would have you then come down from the cross he saved others he saved others One of the things that the religious leaders never did is they never denied the miracles of Jesus. And here they said he saved others, and it was true. I mean, a couple weeks before this, he raised Lazarus from the grave. Lazarus come forth there in Bethany, the town of Mary, just a couple miles from Jerusalem a few weeks before this. We know that he raised Jairus' daughter. We know that he pulled Peter out of the water when he was sinking. As Peter said, Lord, help me. And he pulled him out and plopped him back into the boat. He would cleanse the lepers. He would heal every kind of sickness and disease that people had. He, he was bringing healing to them. They could not deny the miracles and that he saved others. But they would say, he himself, he cannot save. Come down off the cross if you are really the son of God. But in saying that, they were wrong because he could have saved himself. When the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, John Gospel tells us that Jesus said, Whom do you seek? We seek Jesus of Nazareth. And I imagine it was a harsh voice that, that replied in that way as those soldiers come to bound him up, led by the betrayer Judas. And Jesus said, I am he, and they all fell over. 
Like, can you imagine 600 soldiers falling over to the ground? Clubs and swords and everything all over the place and gathering themselves up and their shields if they had them, whatever. And they, Jesus said, whom do you seek? And I think they were a little bit more quiet in the answer, Jesus. And we know that as they came to bound them up, and I think that Jesus, they were knocked down to the ground because he was letting them know that you're not going to take me unless I let you take me. Remember, it was Jesus that said that no one lays down, you know, my life. I lay it down, and I'll take it up again. So we know that Jesus, as he is there in the garden, they came to arrest him. And Peter pulls out the sword, and he gets the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. And in that, Jesus said, Peter, put the sword away. Don't you know I can call down 12 legions of angels? He could have just simply spoke. And 12, 12, you know, legions of angels, 72,000 angels would have descended upon that garden and destroyed those soldiers, destroyed Jerusalem, could have destroyed the whole world. But he didn't do it. Because Peter put the sword away. Don't you know that I'm going to take on the cup of suffering and death that the Father has given me to drink of, the cup of suffering, to be baptized and immersed in suffering and death? And so Jesus, he could have done that. He, he kept silent when Pilate wanted to, to release him. And the reason that he didn't save himself was because there would be no hope for you and for me. It was because of his love for you. And keep in mind that as he went through such sufferings that we can't fully understand, and as he made his way to that place of execution that is called Golgotha, Golgotha in the Hebrew tongue, that he did it because of his love for you, to save you. And as he's on that cross and as he's dying, he's dying for you. He's taking on your sins upon himself. He's making provision for you to have hope an eternal hope and reconciliation with the Father, that he's taken on the wrath that you and I deserve. And we read here in this and this scene, it's an incredible scene, that there are two thieves on either side of Jesus, verse 44, that are mocking him, fulfilling what Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12 tells us, that he was numbered with the transgressor. And then Luke's gospel gives us further information that as time went on, one of the robbers was saying, uh, both of them initially, hey, if you're the son of God, get us down from here. And then Jesus would say, in the midst of all the ugliness and all the madness and all the dying, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And over time, one of the robbers, and I think that as he could still see the eyes of Jesus dying next to him, that somehow, that some way, that here he is, this one, that has no hope, complete despair, in pain, in agony, about ready to die, and all of a sudden, that he was touched, and in a moment of truth, throws himself on the mercy and grace and love of our Lord. And in a voice that has been heard throughout the centuries, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Hey, he, he's done nothing wrong. We're the ones that we're deserving of what we get up here on the cross. And, and there he's given the gospel because you and I, we're guilty of sin. We deserve death. I hope that none of us think here that I deserve to go to heaven. No, what we deserve is hell. And I don't say this to, to, to be mocking or, 
or negative. That's the truth of God's word. But Jesus took on the suffering and death on the cross and took on your sin and my sin that, that we don't have to taste death, that we can be with him for all eternity and be forgiven. That, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then those words of hope and promise that you'll be with me in paradise before the sun sets. And I imagine that, that Robert, that, that through his, his mercy and grace and asking for you to remember me, Lord, that all of a sudden as he heard those words, you're going to be with me in paradise before the sun sets, that he just went, wow. You see, never give up on anyone. That you might think they're in such pain, they're in such agony, you know, they, they have reviled God. There's no hope for them. There is hope for them as long as they are breathing. You keep praying for them. You give them the gospel. You keep asking the Lord to touch their hearts and open up their eyes. And I've been with a few people over the years that they are in their last moments, their last hours. And they said, Pastor Jeff, that there's no hope for me. I've wasted my life. I've done so much bad. I've hurt so many people. I got so many regrets. And I tell them, it's not too late. You can come to Christ. And that's the message that we can give to them. I've also gone into to people that have said, well, you come see my loved one. They're in their last moments. And I've walked into their room. And they said, get out of here. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to hear the gospel. And it's kind of like, you want to talk to me. Because we want to talk about where you are headed. And where you can be headed if you come to Christ. But don't give up on people. And here in the last hours, this thief gives his life to Jesus Christ. And the promise of eternal life is given to him. And now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. The sixth hour would be noon. Darkness would fill the land until three o'clock for three hours. Now Dr. Luke, in his account, tells us that darkness covered all of the earth. The whole world went dark. When Jesus was born, Luke chapter 2, it was dark on that night. But light filled the night sky as a heavenly host would praise God. Here the darkness covers all of the earth. And I think it was an eerie darkness. A supernatural darkness. I think it was a darkness that can be felt. Because in the book of Exodus, remember that darkness came upon Egypt. It said it was a darkness that could even be felt. Symbolic of what had taken place. A rejection of the one who was the light of the world. Putting him to death. Darkness filled the land. There is darkness that we have in this world today. And people feel the darkness in their hearts. And so I've said this a lot over the last couple months. People are looking for the light. And you and I, we can point them to the light, Jesus Christ. And what I pray is that they see his light in us being reflected as we come to Christ. We get to tell them where you can find the light. Where you can find truth. And the way, because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And in verse 46, in about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. 
And immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. And the rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. Jesus was not crying out, Elijah. He was saying, Eli, Eli, that is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And as Jesus was on that cross, he was dying for your sins and my sins. All of our sins were placed upon him at that time. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every other time that Jesus cried out to God, it was what? My father. It was my father. But not this time. Again, a fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? But you are holy. Habakkuk, that Old Testament prophet, declared concerning God, you are of purer eyes than to behold beauty. You cannot look on wickedness. That's in chapter 1 of that book. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that Jesus not only bore our sins, but actually became sin for us. The Father at that moment, when all the sins of humanity was placed upon Jesus, the Father being a righteous God, being a holy God, turned his eyes and his back on his son. That is, in other words, the Bible says that sin separates a man from God. And when the sins of the world were placed upon Jesus at that time, the fellowship that Jesus had with the Father, the oneness, the coexistence that he had with the Father from eternity past was broken. And Jesus, who had existed with God from the beginning, who shared the glory of deity before the world ever existed, was forsaken of God. When God laid upon him the iniquity of us all, he tasted death for every man and every woman. He tasted of death for you. He experienced the consequences of sin, separation from God. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, sin does separate us from God. Matter of fact, the Bible says before we came to Christ, we were at enmity with God. There are those who will tell you, well, you know, I don't really need to come to Jesus uh, because um, we're all children of God. We all belong to God. Well, the Bible says that our sin has separated us from God. And matter of fact, in Romans chapter 8 and also in the book of Galatians, that we who are of faith, that we can come and we have the spirit of adoption where we can cry out, Abba, Father. Papa is what that word Abba means. Isn't that wonderful? But those of us who are of faith, we're the only ones that can truly say that. You see, sin has separated you from God, but he's provided a way for you to be forgiven, for you to be rescued, for you to be saved, and as through the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. May the Lord help us, listen, never to echo those words of Jesus. Those who live in sin, those who refuse Jesus as their Savior, experience separation from God. As Jesus cried out these words, they are kept for us in the original language. It was a cry of intensity. It was a cry of terror. Kept in the Aramaic that you and I might understand that this is not some small whisper or a simple statement, but it is an intense cry. As you and I, we read about the life of Jesus here in Matthew's gospel. Leprosy didn't move him. Storms didn't frighten him. 
The religious leaders did not intimidate him. But there was one moment, there was one thing that brought agony to our Lord. And it was at this moment when he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And at this time, when all of my sins and your sins were put on him, God being a holy God, could not look upon him. And Jesus, not only experiencing that broken fellowship with the Father at this time, but he was experiencing the actual outpouring of the Father's wrath upon him as a substitute for sinful humanity. And it would bring great agony for Jesus. So I want to ask you a question, and it's a question for me. What brings agony to you? Truly. What brings agony to you? Is it, well, you know, I want to be popular. I don't want people to see that, that I'm too religious or take my Christianity too serious. I want to be accepted of everyone. I, you know, I don't want to seem like too religious. What brings agony to us? Is that I want to do my own thing? I want to be involved in sin and carnality and worldliness. I, I don't want to be too close to you, Lord. And I pray that the one thing that would really cause us to be concerned in this life would be this, being out of touch of intimacy and closeness with the Lord. Because we don't want to spend time with Him. We don't want to follow closely with Him. We don't want to live for him. We just want to kind of do our own thing. We don't want to seem too religious to other people or whatever it might be. And when we understand, not because I say so, but, but the word of God declares to you and to me that life was meant to live in closeness with the Lord. And anything other than that, that over time, you're going to be discouraged, you're going to be unfulfilled, Emptiness is going to fill your heart and your life. You are created to have fellowship and closeness with him. And that's where you're going to find true fulfillment and satisfaction and joy and peace in that life abundantly that he has for you. I think we all want that. I think if I was to ask you, does anybody want to be unfulfilled? Do you want to be dissatisfied and feel empty in life? I don't, I don't think any of you would raise your hand. And there's all kinds of advice out there and philosophy and, and all of this that is out there. And people tell you how you can be happy and, you know, follow me and I'll coach you and, and all of this. Here's how you become really, truly full of joy and peace and satisfied and fulfilled and have real purpose. Walk with him. Enjoy him. Rest in Him. Trust in Him. Know Him. And you will see that He'll fill your heart with those things that we all desire as we do that, living in intimacy and closeness with Him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His spirit. The other Gospels tell us that at this time Jesus would cry out, It is finished. It is finished. It is finished. Te telestai. The most wonderful three words ever spoken. It is done. We're a forgiven people. We are here because of what Jesus did for us on Calvary's cross and rising from the grave. 
And always being established in this, that he paid the price for our sins. He has reconciled us to the Father. We don't come to the Father based on our piety and our own righteousness and our knowledge of theology and our works. It is the work that he did, and he finished it on the cross of Calvary. It is finished. There's nothing that you can do in and of yourself to earn salvation. Jesus paid it all. And I've said this so many times, but I think maybe perhaps somebody needs to hear it here again at this service, that you never put a question mark where God puts a period. Okay? It's done. It's finished. He paid the price. Now you can come and and receive his love and live in his grace. Should we continue in sin that grace abounds? Paul says, certainly not. We identify with Christ. We live in the newness of life now. The Spirit of God dwells in us. We are free not to live for the world. We're free to live for Him. We're we're free from the world. We don't have to be in bondage to the world. But we live in that resurrected life for Him. It is finished, He would cry out. And then in Behold, in verse 51, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. The veil between the holy place and the most holy place. The Old Testament, two rooms in the tabernacle. There are two rooms in, in the temple. The holy place, the priest would go, and there's the menorah and the shewbread table and the altar of incense. Then a veil, behind a veil, was the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And only the high priest was allowed to go behind that veil to the tangible presence of God, where the Shekinah glory of God was on the Day of Atonement for a short time after he did elaborate washings and cleansing to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And as the high priest did that, you see the priests weren't even allowed to come in. The people weren't allowed to come in. And Jesus cries out, it is finished. It is finished. And all of a sudden the veil rent in two And I imagine it came crashing down. And if there were any priests there doing their duties there in the holy place, for the very first time they could see into the Holy of Holies. And in that, as Matthew inserts this, it's like the Lord was saying, open house. Come on in. Now fellowship with the Father is now possible. And it would be later on that the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, he would say that because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we can come with confidence into the Holy of Holies. Not our own confidence, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine the Old Testament high priest, you know, such as Aaron and the others, that they would read that saying, really, this is absolutely incredible that you get to come into the Holy of Holies, the tangible presence of God. You get to have fellowship with him, and you can do it because of what Jesus did for you. And it's not just once a year, but you can do it anytime you want to do it. You can do it as many times as you want to do it, and you can do it as long and stay there as long as you want. Isn't that a marvelous privilege and opportunity that we have? Because of what Jesus Christ has done for you, never take that for granted that we can come into the Holy of Holies and sit at the feet of the Lord to know him because we've been reconciled to him through Jesus Christ. And then it tells us that the graves were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So what an interesting sight this must have been. 
As the earthquake happens and the rocks split and described only by Matthew as tombs are opened up and all of a sudden uh, the, those who had fallen asleep that were dead were raised up. They appeared to many in Jerusalem. And Matthew seems to indicate that as he inserts this, that this takes place after Jesus' resurrection. Now, who specifically they were, we know that they were the saints. We don't know specific individuals. Uh, there's a couple thoughts on this most difficult verse. People think, what is going on here? It gives us good indication that they were recognized by others in Jerusalem. Now the question is, were they raised as they came forth like what we see with Lazarus? Again, Lazarus come forth. Lazarus came forth from the tomb, but Lazarus would have to die physically once again. Is that what's going on here? Or, as some scholars, such as Dr. Wolvold and others, suggest that maybe this is a fulfillment of the first fruits of harvest mentioned in Leviticus chapter 23. The people, you see, they would bring the first fruits of the harvest to the priests. And the resurrection of the believers here at this time was a token of the coming harvest when all saints are going to be raised, of course, at the rapture of the church. 1 Corinthians 15 says Christ is the first fruits of the dead. Each will come in its own order. So perhaps that's what's taking place here. But as we continue, so when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, centurions, we've talked about them. Four times centurions are mentioned in the New Testament. Each time they're mentioned in a positive light. The centurion up at uh, Capernaum, remember he came to Jesus and said, just speak the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus marveled at his faith. We know that the other centurion mentioned in the book of Acts, Cornelius, <clears throat> that it was Peter that went to his house and preached the gospel to him and his family, and they got saved and the Holy Spirit came upon them. That's when the gospel really began with the Gentiles, right there, Cornelius, the centurion, his house, and then would spread from there. At the end of the book of Acts, you have a centurion that would follow Paul, would escort him as Paul is a prisoner of Rome, as the last couple chapters of Acts tells us of that, that journey that he made from Caesarea to Rome in a shipwreck. And the, the centurion is mentioned there helping Paul. And here this centurion, they're the backbone of the Roman military. They're in charge of a hundred men. They were dedicated. They were tough. Chosen for their bravery and loyalty. And this centurion watching the crucifixion of Jesus He's hearing the words of Jesus. <coughs> Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It goes dark for three hours. The earth shook. He realized something big is happening here that Rome has no control over. Rome can't make the, the, the sky go dark over all the earth. You know, they can't cause the earthquake. He hears Jesus say, it is finished. And this centurion, as he's seeing all of this, he comes to the conclusion <clears throat> that truly this was the Son of God. So what convinced him? What would convince him was, as he sees all this and, and those with him guarding Jesus, the earthquake, the sun going dark, but also I think that perhaps 
that the way that Jesus handled suffering and death and pain and rejection, and this rugged centurion known for his military toughness, probably not impressed with the Jews until he saw this one, the king of the Jews, face suffering and pain and death. You see, the way that we handle the difficulties and the trials and the loss and the pain that we experience in life. And we will grieve. And we will have a sadness in our hearts. As we go through the difficulties, we will have pain. But as we go through those times in our own lives and we trust the Lord, that underneath it all, there is that peace that passes understanding. There is that joy inexpressible of the Lord. That the Lord is working through you, giving you his strength. And people will be looking and watching us when the hour is dark and when things are shooken up all around us. And when they see the way that we trust and rest and rely on the Lord, listen, it can be used to convert many a centurion's that they think, well, I'm tough, I'm rugged, I'm, you know, don't need anybody. But the way that that Christian handled that situation that they're in, the strength that they receive, the joy underneath it all and of the sadness that they have, that there's something different. And how did they get it and where did they get it? And I want to know because they've seen the reality of Jesus Christ in your life. And as many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, verse 55 tells us, ministering to him, were there looking from on from afar, among who were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, the mother of Zebedee's sons. At this time, gathered around the cross of Jesus was this group of women. So here's another question to ask. Where were the men? Where were the men? Where's James and Peter and Andrew and Matthew? Well, we know that they're hiding. They're afraid. Only John was recorded as being at the cross. We know from John's gospel that John had been there with Mary, the mother of Jesus, as they stood at the cross in those first few hours. Jesus had found the strength in the midst of his own suffering to commit his mother to the care of the disciple John. But evidently, John was gone now and had led Mary away with him. The people that were there mocking, they're gone. The religious leaders, they're now all gone. And all that's left that Jesus hangs lifeless on that cross is this crowd of women. And I think that it says something very beautiful about their devotion and love and their character. These women who had followed Jesus, ministered to him and the disciples in very practical ways. They're very special. And their love remains. And the last ones at the cross are going to be the first ones at the tomb on the first day of the week. Notice here that the mother of John and James were there. Remember Matthew chapter 20? She come to Jesus asking for a favor. Hey, grant that my two sons may be on your right and on your left when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, you don't know what you ask. Are you able to drink of the cup that I'm about ready to drink, that is the cup of suffering, be baptized with the baptism I'm about ready to be baptized with, being immersed in suffering and death? And here, as she's looking at the cross, seeing Jesus going through the sufferings, two criminals, one on the left and one on the right, suffering and dying. I just wonder if it struck her 
When she sees Jesus suffering on the cross along with those two thieves, one on the right and one on the left, being crucified with them, perhaps she was glad at this time that Jesus didn't approve of her request earlier, but maybe she's beginning to understand that there is this suffering that he did so that all of us can come into the kingdom. And now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself was also become a disciple of Jesus. And this man went to the Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. Next week, we're going to look at the burial of Jesus. You know, oftentimes we focus on the crucifixion of Jesus, which we should. The resurrection of Jesus is the very foundation of our faith. But we forget about the burial of Jesus. And I think that as we look at this, that the Lord wants to speak to us some very powerful things. So Joseph of Arimathea comes and asks for the body of Jesus. I want to just give you a pre- prelude. Why didn't any of the disciples come? Where was Jesus' family? His brothers. But God had a divine appointment for Joseph of Arimathea to care for the body of Jesus. You don't want to miss it next week. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for... This account, again, of the crucifixion, we're so familiar. But, Lord, we do ask that for us, that we wouldn't play games with our salvation. So great a salvation that we have. And, Lord, we are brought together here at the cross. It's where our hope is, in an empty tomb. Jesus, the only one that went and died for our sins and conquered sin and death by rising from the grave validating what he did, that he is the Son of God. And Father, I pray that we would understand this, that he is the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. That Jesus provided forgiveness of sin that separates us from you. And I pray if there's anyone here, you're listening right now online or perhaps later on the radio, that you've never given your life to Jesus. You cannot save yourself, and a church can't save you. It is only Jesus. He died for your sins and rose again, and he says, come. You put your faith in him and know that you're a sinner separated from God that needs forgiveness. The Bible says, repent. Quit going in the direction you're going and turn to him for salvation and forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with the Father, the hope of eternal life. It's all found in Jesus because it is finished. And today is the day of salvation. You can come right now. And you can pray, Jesus, I come to you and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I confess I'm a sinner. Forgive me. I believe you died for me. You rose again. You're alive. And I ask that you sit upon the throne of my heart as my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for your love for me in this new beginning. And I do want to know you and walk with you all the days of my life. Thank you, Jesus, proving your love for me. That while I was yet a sinner, you died for me. And Lord, I pray for all of us that as we leave this place, just being in more awe of what you've provided for us through the cross. I thank you for everyone here. I pray you bless our week. Lord, again, that you keep us safe and our eyes on you. Even through the difficulties that we go through, that the people would see the light of the world in us. 
the reality of Jesus. Bless everyone here as we go our way now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you please stand? If anybody made a decision,